everyone, and welcome to Be Heard Talk, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of hip-hop, AOC, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, we discuss race, politics, and culture, and we do that from an unapologetic perspective, and we give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave your comments on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn, and we will read them throughout this show. My name is Selena Hill, and I'm the founder of Be Her Talk and the digital editor at Black Enterprise. And of course, I'm super excited to be here with you all to discuss everything from the biggest news stories of the week, such as the Asian spa shooting spree to the spring break mayhem in Miami that caused city officials to declare a state of emergency. Later on in the show, we'll unpack the divisiveness that's taking place within the Black Lives Matter movement that was sparked by Tamir Rice's mother, who's accusing leaders like Tamika Mallory and Sean King of exploiting and even monopolizing the deaths of Black people for clout. So we got a lot to talk about. Uh, please support Be Her Talk by buying us a coffee. You can do that by going to buymeacoffee.com slash Talk. Your support through a small donation will help us to continue to support and amplify the issues that you care about. Now, without further ado, let me introduce my co-host for this show, starting with Stanley Fritz, a New York City political lobbyist and one of the architects of the Be Heard Talk brand. How's it going, Stanley? Hey, Selena. Happy Sunday. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to see you. It's good to see you on a Sunday. Yeah, right. I put on my good shirt for today, too. Okay, and I know who you did. You didn't do that for me. You did that for our very special guest host, Listen who I have me. the privilege to introduce as well, Karina Maria Cabrera. And I know I messed it up, but she's going to correct it. me. She is the morning show host at Hot 93.3 in Dallas. Hey, Thank Karina. You. Hey, Selena. Hey, Stanley. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. I mean, what? We've known each other, what, 10 plus years at this point? Okay. So honored to be here. I think I was a last a guest like seven years ago, and I'm honored to be back. Thank you for having me. That's when you first got to WHCR, and now we have StreamYard. Mm. Leveling up, leveling up. All the moves. Yeah, so Karina is definitely a college friend of Stanley Fritz and I, and so good to see you, girl, calling in all the way from Dallas. We have a lot to talk about. I'm going to just throw it over to you to hit yes. us with these news roundup stories. Selena, thank you so much, girl. Before we dig into the controversy around Black Lives Matter, uh, let's start off with some of the most buzzworthy news headlines that have been going on this week. The news roundup, this is a segment where we unpack the biggest and most impactful stories. And we have to start with talking about the tragedy that took place in Atlanta that sparked the conversation about anti-Asian hate crimes, not just here, but I think around the world, right? Um, so Robert Aaron Long went on the killing spree in three spas in Atlanta, murdering eight people. Uh, he admitted that he did this because because he had a sexual addiction, so he wanted to eliminate temptation, quote unquote. <clears throat> He's been charged with eight counts of murder. The kicker here for me personally is that police say that these were not racially motivated deaths or that they can't prove that as of yet. Um, this is clearly a hate crime to me. Selena, Stanley, what do you think? Why do you think that we're still struggling as a society to call it what it is? And why do you think that the distinction between calling it a hate crime as opposed to just murder is so important? 
Um, that's a great question, Karina. And I think that there's, uh, I guess, some like legality issues around it. But for to me, this is a, a textbook case of a hate crime. Um, number one, he said he had a sexual addiction with women. So if you're saying that in order to curb your sexual addiction with women, you kill women, that sounds like intended hate. Right. And then I know the racial aspect also goes into it because they all happen to be Asian women. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but it just sounds like, you know, the facts are the facts. Um, you know, even though it's very obvious, especially to people of color, you know, we call out white supremacy when we see it. I mm -hmm. think for other parts of America, they don't see it like that. And we even saw it with the police captain, captain who was caping for him talking about, oh, he just had a bad day. Right. What? And so, you know, I, I, we could go on and on. I'm gonna leave it right here. But there's there's definitely a lot. Yeah, this is absolutely a hate crime. It's yeah. very simple. When you're talking about hate crimes, you, you can't just talk about racism. You got to talk about patriarchy, um, toxic masculinity, and white supremacy. Those three combined together to make toxic Captain Planet, also known as Donald Trump, or just the Proud Boys. And what you're seeing here is a manifestation of continued unchecked white supremacy lashing out at people. Anytime there's been white rage, they go after black people and people of color, but usually they go after what they think are the weakest groups, which are right. the women. Because once again, society tells us that women are weak, women do not have value, women ought to be controlled by men. So now, if you are no longer the superior race and women have rights, and you have these urges for women that you cannot activate on your own without their consent, you lash out. It is absolutely a hate crime. And folks don't want to say it's a hate crime and don't want to call it white supremacy because once again, if you acknowledge white supremacy as a white person, you have to look yourself in the mirror because sure. the things these savages are doing, you probably feel. And I think the distinction is important to call it a hate crime because it sends a message to the marginalized community. Like we see you, we see that you're being attacked directly and we're doing something about it as opposed to treating it as an isolated incident. I think that's why the distinction is so important. But honestly, like historically, the U.S. has been uh, key in making Asian Americans feel isolated, right? With Japanese internment, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Why do you think that we're just now seeing the plight of our Asian American brothers and sisters? I think it's an easy answer. So there was a lot more black and Asian API unity in the 60s and 70s, but then the model minority stereotype really became popularized in the late 70s and early 80s. And it's really done a lot of work to A, neuter the story of people coming from Asia. And so now mm -hmm. we all think that they're all making above average salaries and that they all have great education, they all have great housing. And that's just not necessarily the truth. Sure. First of all, Asia is a continent that doesn't just cover China, Japan, and Korea. You're also talking about the Middle East. You're also, you're also talking about India. You're talking about all different kinds of places. And that's a multitude of different types of people. So you can't frame it into one box. And the other piece is, because Asians technically show up as white, folks don't tend to listen to them when they say they are being persecuted. But as people of color who are all fighting against white supremacy, it is imperative that we stand with our AAPI sisters and brothers. And that that was that's my leads to my following question, Stanley. Thank you for bringing that up. And I think this is for the comments too. What can we do to stand mm. by the Asian community during this time? Like, what are things that we can mm. implement on a daily basis? to avoid these things from happening again. Number one is by calling a spade a spade. You know, right. Pam Matthews, you know, she left a comment, I think it was via Facebook saying, absolutely hate, hate crimes have more severe penalties, which is why we should call this and charge this tragedy with a hate crime. And then um, Cabria 
also left a comment. She says, Cabrillo LaShawn via Facebook says, a federal hate crime destination, um, designation will add to the potential charges and who will be prosecuting those charges and in what order. So right. exactly, we have to start by holding people accountable. We That's have to it. start by saying, this is, this is racist, right? This is happening in a time where Asian Americans have been under attack since COVID. And we know that's been led by Donald Trump, who mm -hmm. himself was using, who used racial overtones and undertones to describe right. the coronavirus. And now we're seeing that play out in these small pockets of radicalized white supremacists who have access to guns. So they're going out and committing and carrying out, you know, basically committing the next steps in his hateful rhetoric. That's what's happening. And to stop it, we need to call it out and we need to sure. hold this person accountable. For sure. Agreed. Thank you. And speaking of leaders who are being irresponsible with their platforms, we're going to move on to Miami spring break shutdown. Okay. So the Miami Beach mayor, Dan Gilbert, he declared a state of emergency and set a curfew Saturday for 8 p.m., saying that the crowds that have descended on the city recently are more than we can handle. Duh, because you opened up in September. That's like saying, okay, here, this is a child. Go into the candy closet, but don't eat any of the candy. I mean, to me, this is obvious that this is what was going to happen. Do you think that the mayor's statement is somewhat contradictory, being that Florida opened back up in September? Well, Not it's not, not necessarily only. Go ahead, Stanley. Yeah, sorry about that, Stanley. It's not necessarily the mayor's fault. Florida just so happens to have a knuckle dragging Neanderthal as their governor, also known as Ron DeSantis, and he never closed the state. And Florida mm -hmm. has some of the highest COVID infection rates and deaths in the entire nation because of that. Yeah. So, and when local cities tried to close up, the governor stopped them from doing it and banned them. So they don't really have a choice. I was going to mm -hmm. add that. So the mayor was actually blaming cheap flights. He said, and I quote at a press conference, last month you could get here from Philadelphia, New York, or Chicago for $50 round trip. Well, I'm coming. It is not, huh? It is not the fault of these cheap flights. It's because the, the, the state and the city never closed. So of right. course, you know, being in a capitalist society, we're gonna have airlines going to take advantage of that. And we know that, you know, South Florida, has always been a hotbed and a strong attraction for young people on spring break, but it also happens to be a hotbed for COVID-19 transmissions. The state actually surpassed 2 million coronavirus cases, but still they refuse, they refuse to shut it down because they're prioritizing profits over people. People are yeah. dying. And you know, with these spring breakers down there, they may not, they may not die, but what they're doing is they're carrying these variants all around the country to their parents, their grandparents, and their communities. So this is putting us all at danger. Dude, did, did you guys see the footage <laughs> like, yeah, of how they are going crazy yeah. right now? It's out of control. And just to be clear, the mayor, it's not his fault that Florida is open, but he is able to implement regulations um, to kind of prevent these things from happening. Um, so do, that leads to my next question. Do you think it's part of businesses in the area and the government's responsibility to keep order? Or should the individuals who are traveling there be held responsible for their lack of keeping safety or keeping social distance or keeping the guidelines uh, that the CDC has recommended. Who's at fault here? Who is to be blamed? It's a combination of both. 
So it is 100% up to elected leaders and the people responsible for running the state to make sure that the state is closed and you don't have access to any of these things. And the businesses, when you have people who are ignorant. Yeah, I know. I feel the same exact way. But like the businesses should actually also step up too. But businesses right. are about their bottom line. They're losing money if they stay closed, which is why the government needs to step in. Now, people should be personally responsible, but if there's one thing this pandemic has taught us is that most of us will be responsible and do what we need to do. And some of us just wa like to watch the world burn. And there's enough people who count in that some of us group that it can really put the rest of us in danger. Sure. What I've seen here in Texas, because we recently opened up 100 percent um, where the governor has left it up to the businesses to implement the mask mandate if they want to. Uh, and businesses are allowed to be at 100 percent capacity is that aside from it being a dangerous health issue, what it's done is it's polarized and made wearing a mask a political statement. So, you know, if somebody's wearing a mask, what side of the political spectrum they lie on in terms of ideology. And so that further divides us, right? So it's just, there's so many implications and so many layers to this um, that, I mean, first of all, it, it's to me personally, I think it's a premature action to open up states when not everybody has been vaccinated yet, you know, so. Absolutely, so Amari Lewis left a comment via LinkedIn saying the Super Bowl was in Florida and they've been partying down there. Mm -hmm. And it's true, we actually have some footage of what's going on right now. This happened last night. Let's go to the footage. Look, as much as I would love to be at a concert right now in a, a, a marsh, a marsh pit, as much as I would love to be around folks, I'm not doing that. It's not right. safe. Look, no. I was on, I went to spring break when I was in college, shout out to old Westbury, but this is just not the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to your point about responsibility, um, it's the government officials. You know, I also think if you happen to be a parent of a young person, do not endorse them or encourage them to go to Miami right now. Try to talk them out of it because right. it's for our the, the safety of our humanity and our society at this point. Right. And I think if there's anything that this virus has taught us is that we're living in community. We're doing this for one another. It's not just about us. It's not just about us having fun and going to spring break. It's the bigger picture. And I think government officials, for sure, as leaders, need to be more responsible. Um, moving on to the next topic on the news roundup. Kevin Frazier. Y'all, Kevin Frazier is getting dragged over Sharon Osbourne and that interview he did. And just to recap the story, uh, Sharon Osbourne flocked to the defense of Piers Morgan, who is a British journalist, who was talking about uh, Meghan Markle's interview and uh, her speaking up against Buckingham Palace, saying that she faced racism. Uh, he called her a liar, basically. He denounced all of her claims. And Sharon Osbourne went to his defense. Um, and so then she was being dragged, obviously, for being racially insensitive. Kevin Frazier gave her a platform to speak on that. And now Kevin Frazier is being dragged as a black journalist for giving her a softball interview or and quote unquote protecting her, as many have said. Selena, you as a journalist, do you think Kevin was doing his job or do you think he was trying to protect her? Um, I think he was doing his job, but I think he did a bad job at it. 
Um, mm-hmm. I know. So if I watched the full interview, I think it was like maybe about five or six minutes. And it did seem like he asked like very softball type questions. But he said in a later statement that the interview was actually 90 minutes and they cut a lot out. Mm-hmm. Look, if it was me, I'm asking her 100 percent why, you know, why you told Cheryl Underwood to not cry. Why did you feel like the victim? You yeah. know, do you understand white fragility? Do you understand the consequences? Do you understand yeah. white privilege? We're talking about that's the conversation we're having. I'm not giving Sharon Osborne um, you know, a 30-minute space to just continue to make her arguments and her plea. That's not what I'm doing. So maybe Kevin Frazier wasn't the right person for the job. I don't know. But another thing, and I know we'll get to it. The fact that he called out other black women hmm. to educate Sharon Osborne like it's our duty. And that's why Amanda Seals gathered his whole life. Yes, rightfully whole life. So. Rightfully so. And I think I don't even think Sharon Osborne should have been given a platform to further explain herself and further perpetuate her racial insensitivity because that's all she's doing. This is not the first time that Sharon Osborne has expressed. Uh, racist sentiment, right? When Justin Bieber was lashing out, she was like, oh, Justin Bieber thinks he's black because he peed in public. You know, she she said, oh, is Meghan Markle even black? Because she's mixed. So I, I don't even, she doesn't look black. Like this is not the first time that she's done this. We've seen Sharon Osbourne do this time and time again. And so to continue to give her the platform makes me very upset. And I think that who he should have interviewed is her, her co-host, Cheryl, giving her the space to discuss how she felt in that moment. And well, I, think- I agree, Karina, but Joe Josette via Facebook says Kevin was doing his job. Poorly. <laughs> Kevin was Poorly. Listen, you can do your job without being a knuckle-dragging Uncle Tom spotlighter for white people. Sure. You can do that. Sharon Osborne is a mediocre white woman who's only famous because her husband did drugs and ate it and bit a bat one time. And now she gets to give comments about black people. First off, don't care about Sharon Osborne. Second off, she has too much white privilege. And thirdly, you can do your job and ask tough questions, but then try to ask other black women to educate this old woman who's been old and white and privileged all her life and not has taken out any time to read a book. Forget her. Yeah. If that's not he's gonna move, then that's not somebody I need to support. He deserved to get dragged. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think he did ask the softball question. Stanley, would you have taken the interview with Sharon Osborne? Oh, I would have taken it and I would have dragged her all over the interwebs. I'm like, so Sharon, why do you think you're more important than a black woman? Uh, why did you think that, you have, what gives you a right to question somebody's race as a white woman with no lips? Damn. I would have I would have got in that behind. Do you think well, that Kevin Frazier was at least well intentioned in no. you don't think he was he had good intentions behind the motive? Well, he had good intentions for that white woman. We got enough black men saving white women. We're, we're done with that. Like right. this is this is why like so many black women feel like they can't count on black men because this very white woman who has said disrespectful things about other black women yeah. just came on his show and he was like, "Oh, hey, beautiful, let me take out my cape for you." We're yeah. done with that. I agree. I agree. I do think that she shouldn't have even been given the space to continue to talk about this because you clearly don't get it. You're either purposely being ignorant or you just don't get it either way you shouldn't be given a platform personally oh, yeah. with you. so people are going off in the comments <laughs> Addie, Addie Smith says via Facebook Sharon should be fired she shouldn't be paid out of her contract she should have been fired a long time ago yeah. 
Looks like she's been horrible to all the co-hosts. Yep. Thank you, Addie, for bringing yep. that up because there have been reports that uh, she used racist language to Holly P. Yep, she her ghetto. ghetto. Yes. Sorry, I couldn't even contain myself with that one because I remember she called her ghetto that one time. She's been doing this. On air. She's been getting away with it. People turn the other cheek to her and it's not fair. It's not fair. She, this, it's the time to, to not drag her because nah, yeah. But she needs to go. She's got uh, Nah, listen. Shit. White people get way too much rope. They they disrespect black people. They disrespect people of color. They shoot Asian people, and then we tell them they're having a bad day. Yeah. I think you need to stop making white people feel comfortable. Yeah, you for sure. Comfortable. You need to feel unsafe. You need to feel like you don't have any friends because as long as you continue to uphold white supremacy, right. you absolutely do not. White people and white supremacy specifically is going to be the reason this whole world crumbles because white supremacy is such a strong drug. They can't get beyond themselves and it's going to cost all of us our lives unless we are 100% honest with them and hold them 100% accountable. I have no space or patience for Sharon Osbourne or for any other other mediocre, untalented white supremacist Beckys out there in the world. Making well, the victim yet again. Oh, yeah. Like, like for her to play the victim role was irritating and disrespectful. Yeah. Uh, Leslie Sassy Chef Wiggs says via Facebook, both Sharon and Kelly Osbourne have been disrespectful time and time again, which right. I think goes to Stanley's point about how many chances that they get. Yes. I know me as a black woman working in the space of media, we don't get that many chances. We have to go and, and, and be 10 times as good as better because we know our leverage is this big. Whereas you have someone who has a history, a track record of using inappropriate language, of using straight out racist language, and yet and still CBS The Talk is on a hiatus. If it was anybody else, they it would not wrong. be tolerated. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. So we all agree Sharon's got to go. Sharon's got to go. All right. <laughs> Moving on to pop culture. So Weedy and Quavo done called it quits, y'all. It's over. No. Uh, in a tweet, she alluded uh, that uh, he's been cheating. She says, and quote, I've endured too much betrayal and hurt behind the scenes and that he's been giving his time and affection to other women. Were you all surprised by this news? First of all, I am, I am heartbroken by this news. <laughs> Sweetie and Quavo were one of my favorite, one of my favorite celebrity couples. I, I I love them from afar. I, I thought that they, you know, they looked super cute together. Yeah. They were both accelerating in their career. Right. I, from the outside looking in, I thought Quavo treated, treated her like a queen. But, you know, everything that's glitters isn't always gold. What It's getting messy, though, because now um, Sweetie's auntie has gotten involved and Quavo's sister, and they're calling each other out. So Quavo's sister no. actually put out a statement via social media saying, Oh, um, do not, don't, you're not going to bash Quavo. It's not all good. Um, sweetie is, I think he, she called her basically like a narcissist and said some other like nasty things. So this is getting really nasty. Not only that, but he repoed her Bentley. Oh, T Quavo reportedly repoed Sweetie's Bentley. It is getting very, he is, is he's tapping out. Okay. He has <laughs> tapped completely out. No pun, it's getting right? nasty. This is what I say. I hope 
that they can reconcile. I hope that, you know, this, they're getting a lot of attention and publicity. I know that Quavo was back in the studio and hopefully this will fuel his fire for culture three, which is supposed to come out. Um, not only that, but I hope that they eventually get back together. Look, I, I love them. Mm -hmm. I thought they were cute. I don't well, agree with you. I, I think they're they're really cute, but I do think that this screams um for a long time we saw them and they looked super cute and it looked like he treated her like a queen. But this whole situation screams toxicity. And I think that what we do in hip hop a lot is hold these relationships at a higher standard and they just like they are like toxic AF. Um, and then it, it like it just perpetuates kind of that cycle of, of women thinking that it's acceptable to be cheated on, of women thinking that violence is acceptable in relationships or that being talked down to is acceptable. So I'm kind of happy to see them split up. And I know that's not what you want to hear, but it's it's my it's true. Listen, it's real. I know you're rooting for Quavius and Saweetie, but Saweetie will be just fine. She will just take another piece of chocolate cake and dip it into blue cheese, which I don't understand why any human being would do that. But apparently that's her jam. Um, but that whole thing, like Karina says, it doesn't just read toxic, it reads abuse. Yeah. I'm saying that Quavo's an abuser, but the way he gasped her on Twitter when she was like, I'm caring about myself, I'm tired of being cheated. And he was like, I thought she was a real one, not no more. And then he repossessed the car that he got her, a gift. What kind of controlling, manipulative stuff? Yes. Listen, I agree with Karina 100%. We should not be uplifting these relationships of people that we do not know at all. So we don't know what happens behind closed doors. She could have been saying, buy him a Birkin, he better buy you a Birkin bag. And then when the cameras went off, she was hitting him or he was hitting her. We don't know. Real relationships are not portrayed on social media. Good luck to Sweetie. Good luck to Quavius. Yeah. So Elle actually left a really good comment. Elle mm -hmm. Cole via LinkedIn says, they are toxic and taking it out in public is not mature. I hope they split. Sure. grow and rise above the madness. I agree, Elle. And one thing I would say that I didn't think really sit well with me was that interview Sweetie did on Revolt with her ex-boyfriend, Justin Combs, and the other toxic, messy Justin. It, she looked very uncomfortable. The questions were uncomfortable. I can yeah. understand how and why Quavo felt violated. But to me, it's just they're they're putting too much into the public and now everybody knows your business. So yeah. I didn't think that was a good move on Sweetie's end. Yeah. And it's obvious that the that the relationship in and of itself lacked a certain level of respect foundationally from the beginning. Yeah. So I'm happy to see them split. I hope that they grow out of this. Now here's a weird interesting question. Do you think that this split is going to hurt or um better their career? Um with Sweetie, yeah, definitely for sure. With Quavo, probably too. Everybody's looking forward to Culture 3 so we can get some more, um, you know, intricate mumble raps. So sure. it'll be really interesting. I think they'll both be fine. Yeah, same. Okay. Um, lastly, now that we've uh, all gotten our hearts mended back together uh, after grieving for uh, Sweetie and Quavo, The Bachelor. I know you guys don't watch The Bachelor, <laughs> but it's one of the most viewed shows in America. Okay, and after 25 seasons, this is the first time that we've seen a black bachelor. And I had a problem with this since day one. The reason is because he is Matt James, no offense to Matt James, but Matt James has a white mom, a black dad who left them. That was the narrative that they chose as the first black bachelor. And to me, this is the franchise trying to find a more digestible version of blackness for white America personally. That's what I think. And so then we saw 
this situation play out with his father, uh, where his father leaves him and he's all heard about it. And I'm tired of seeing the same narrative of a black dad leaving the family. They couldn't find a black bachelor with two happily married black parents. Y'all telling me y'all couldn't find one black bachelor. And this is no offense to Matt James because I feel like I actually liked him as a person, but that really, really bothered me. And it just showed how problematic the franchise has been. And then the winner, uh, then the winner, she, she, uh, there were anti, there were racist pictures that surfaced of her at an anti-bellum party, right? And the host, Chris Harrison, who plays a key role on the show, went to her defense by saying, this was 2018. This isn't offensive in 2018. It's offensive in 2020, which showed a bigger problem. No, it's not just offensive in 2020. It's always been offensive. That's not how you go to her defense. That just shows me that everybody who's part of the Bachelor franchise, who's vetting these women, who's vetting these people, there needs to be more diversity because y'all are either not seeing what the problem is or y'all are seeing the problem and allowing it to continue to perpetuate. That's my two cents on The Bachelor. Can we go to Eddie Smith's comment? Because she says, like, I don't I don't like to question people's blackness, but I do want to read her comment. I don't sure. watch The Bachelor. I absolutely never have. The reason I didn't watch this season either is because this guy is white on the inside. Let me stop what? for a second. Let's not question anyone's race. However, I do not trust black Republicans. She goes on to say there definitely should have been more black women. There should yeah. have been more black women. And then he reinforced the fact that he was a black Republican by picking the white racist woman. So now I really don't trust this guy. I agree with everything Karina said, but listen, white supremacy is about if you have to center someone who is not you or someone that looks like you, you will find someone that doesn't look like you, but it's palatable to your own interests. Right. This man right. needs some therapy and to go talk to some black women. Sure, sure. You know, I mean, and again, like maybe if they, he would have been picked for season 29 after there have been a few black bachelors. Right. Yeah. But to, to, you know, to just continue to perpetuate this narrative is so problematic. And I hate that it's such a highly rated show. And this is what we walk away feeling like. So, um, yeah, that's my two cents on the bachelor. And that is uh, the conclusion of our news roundup. Selena, uh, back to you. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Karina. And I agree with you wholeheartedly about the Black Bachelor and that whole messy situation. Mm. So we are switching gears to talk about Black Lives Matter. I see you guys going off in the comments. I know you couldn't wait to get to the main topic. So here it is. Um, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation reported last month that it raised just over $90 million in 2020. The foundation said it, it has committed $21.7 million in grant funding to official and unofficial Black Lives Matter local chapters, as well as 30 Black-led local organizations. It ended 2020 with a balance of more than $60 million after spending nearly a quarter of its assets on the grant funds and other charitable giving. Now, the Black Lives Matter Foundation said individual donors uh, gave about $30.76 on average. Last year, the foundation's expenses were approximately $8.4 million, the, the national foundation itself, and that included staffing, operating, and administrative costs, along with activities such as civic engagement, rapid response, and crisis intervention. So after we found out that Black Lives Matter earned $90 million, Mike Brown Sr., whose son, Michael Brown Jr., was fatally shot by a white Ferguson police officer in 2014, released a video demanding $20 million in financial support 
from the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. He also released a statement saying, where is all that money going? And who are they giving it to? What are they doing it with? We actually have a clip of Michael Brown Sr. questioning where the money is going. Let's play that. Greetings. I'm Tory Russell, Ferguson Frontline Organizer. And on the behalf of many activists in the St. Louis area, I'm joined with Mike Brown Sr., the father of Mike Brown Jr. Today, we hold Black Lives Matter accountable. The movement that is catapulted into the limelight has forgotten about Ferguson and the Freedom Fighters. Freedom Fighters like King D. Sears, Edward Crawford, and Diane Jones have literally given their lives to the struggle, but have rarely spoken about and families are not taken care of. Brother Ali- So not only is, you know, Michael Brown Sr., an activist in Ferguson calling out Black Lives Matter and saying that they're not taking care of local communities and organizations, but just last week, Samaria Rice, who is the mother of Tamir Rice. We remember Tamir Rice was the 12-year-old who was shot down in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, he had a toy gun. Cops were called. And within seven seconds of showing up to this, a scene, they killed this baby boy. Uh, she also is putting Black Lives Matter on blast. Um, and so she's she's basically sparking further uh, controversy because she's also calling out people by name. She's been calling out lead activists like Tamika Mallory and Sean King. And she's and she actually did this after Tamika Mallory performed at the Grammys. This is what Samaria Rice said. She said, and I quote, look at this clout chaser. Did she lose something in this fight? I don't think so. That's the problem. They take us for a joke. That's why we never have justice because of ish like this. I actually want to play a clip from Tamika Mallory's performance at the Grammys with Little Baby, just for some context. It's a state of emergency. It's been a hell of a year. Hell for over 400 years. My people, it's time we stand. It's time we demand the freedom that this land promises. President Biden, we demand justice, equity, policy, and everything else that freedom encompasses. And to accomplish this, we don't need allies. We need accomplices. It's bigger than black and white. This is not a trend. This is our plight until freedom. So that was a clip from that moving, riveting performance from the Grammys. Uh, shout out to Tamika. Full disclosure, she is a friend of the show here. Um, but nonetheless, Samaria so Rice, she doubled down on her statements. And she put out a new statement calling for Tamika Mallory, Benjamin Crump, Lee Merritt, Patrice Cullors to step down and step back. Then Samaria, Samaria did an um, interview on Sirius XM's radio, The Clay Klain Show. And she further called out uh, Tamika Mallory. However, she did soften her tone. She said, you know, you know, I didn't have to say it like that, but I she still stood by her statements of basically accusing Tamika and most and, and some of the most visible leaders in Black Lives Matter of monopolizing the movement. And we have a clip from Samaria Rice's interview that she did and um i don't feel that's that's what it is um anytime you have activists people we don't even know where these people come from that's be speaking on behalf of our children we never asked them to represent us and then you rep the benefits with movie deals and and uh book deals and, and uh 
you know, you you develop a platform off our children, off our dead children. Absolutely. So we're going to call it what it is. You know, they Abelash chasing Benjamin Crump, Lee Merritt up and down the United States. We are tired. OK, we're tired. Uh, I'm still building a center for my son. And Black Lives Matter got the nerd to act, say they got $90 million after six months or something. Whatever, whatever the case, whatever the wording, I don't have to get it right. I know the facts. You know what I'm saying? So well, as I'm building and still fighting for justice for my son, because we still got a, a 10 months left to get a perjury charges on Timothy Loman on a state level in Cleveland, Ohio. So that was a clip from Mrs. Rice's interview again on Sirius Radio calling out Lee Merritt and a number of activists. In response, Tamika Mallory and her co-host and, and co-leader in the o Until Freedom movement, my son, they released a statement and they talked about it on their podcast, Street Politicians. They addressed it head on. And we're going to play a clip to hear what Tamika said in response to the allegations of her exploiting people's deaths for clout. You know, to, to that end, I guess, um, Ms. Rice has said that she does not want, she wants me to, you know, not speak of her child. Um, and while I may not have been doing it in the past, I will be very, very, very careful going forward to ensure that I respect her wishes. I think we both can say that, you know, we will be very careful to respect her wishes, even if we feel that we're using all the names in order to make a bigger point we will be very, very, very careful not to disrespect her wishes. Now, although what Ms. Rice has said, um, calling me out my name and speaking to me, uh, speaking about me without knowing me has absolutely hurt. It definitely hurt me. But again, I understand. And because of the fact that I do this work, that we do this work from a very, very, very sincere and authentic place, I may not have lost a child, but I did lose the child, my child's father, and it wasn't to police brutality, but I understand loss. And I also want to, and I fight every single day to ensure that I don't have to experience what so many mothers of young black men have experienced. And so I I do come from a personal perspective, although I have not lost a child. And because I understand that pain and trauma working with families for so many years, I would like to tell Ms. Rice today um, that I am available to be supportive if necessary. I'm here for phone calls. I'm here to have any types of uh, conversations with any family. Um, that would like to reach out and talk about uh, the death of their, their child or some. So it's been a lot of back and forth. It's been a lot of controversy. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like we're talking in front of mixed company, right? There's always divisions in movements, especially a movement of this magnitude. But it's all aired out. The, the dirty laundry is out and about. So I definitely want to get your thoughts on it, Karina and Stanley. Um, but we'll start with you, Karina. What was your reaction to Tamir Rice's mother calling out Tamika and everybody else? What do you think about that? Well, I'm a mom to a black child and I can't even imagine what she must be feeling. 
I think she's right in her feelings. And I think that she should be, her feelings should be validated and that it's okay to call out activists. It's okay to call out leaders because we have to hold truth to power and we have to call them out when we see something that we feel like is not fair. She doesn't feel like justice has been served in her case and in maybe other families' cases. And that's fair. And we have to take that into account. At the same time though, I think Tamika embodied the mantra of when they go, uh, when we go, when they go low, we go high kind of thing. Um, because she did call her out of her name and then she did clump together a lot of activists with the Black Lives Matter organization. Tamika Stanley, as you know, is not a part of the Black Lives Matter organization. It's still in question where that money is going and they should be held accountable. But what I do think happened here is that when she spoke out, she forced them into a position where they had to clarify the work that they'd done. And so people who might not have been aware of what they've been doing thus far are now informed. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Tamika's been an activist since she popped out of her mother's womb, okay? She's been doing the work for 25 plus years. So for her to get on the Grammy stage to speak out and shed light to that big audience, I think is great. Um, so I don't wanna, I wanna be careful with my words. I don't wanna call Tamir Rice's mom's comments misguided because that's not fair because she's right in how she feels. Um, and I just feel like now it's, now we just have to wait and see what the heads of the Black Lives Matter organization, the network has to say about the money. But let's remember, it's only seven years old. Let's not take away from the bigger picture of the good that's been done thus far. It's only seven years old. They only made real money last year. So let's give them a second to respond to that. Thank you for that, Karina. I actually want to highlight Addie Smith's comment via Facebook. Addie says, Tamika Mallory is definitely a clout chaser. How well is her new book doing? Wait, but Tamika says Samira Rice doesn't know her? Wow, definitely a clout chaser. Why hasn't she personally gone to Samaria? Shaking my head. Yes. And the reason I wanted to highlight that is because this is what I've been seeing on Twitter. This is what some of my friends are talking to me about. They are basically, basically using Samaria Rice's comments to lambast Tamika and everybody else. Um, Stanley, you're a community organizer. You do this work. You're about that life. What is your response to Samaria Rice's allegations and everybody else who's jumping on the bandwagon at this time? Ms. Rice has every right to be upset and frustrated. I want to send to that first. Yep. I don't have a child. Um, and I don't have a black child. I might one day and I, I would be destroyed if I lost them. Having said that, I know Tamika personally. I've done work with Tamika. Tamika Mallory is no plow chaser. Tamika mm -hmm. Mallory is no ambulance chaser. She's no poverty pimp. And truth be told, there are plenty of poverty pimps and ambulance chasers within this movement. A good example of poverty pimps and ambulance chasers is Black Lives Matter, Greater New York, led by Walter Hawk Newsom. That's a group of people who take advantage and lie and steal. Tamika Mallory, absolutely not. And Tamika Mallory is also not involved with Black Lives Matter in any way. And she's somebody who's been doing this work before there was a Black Lives Matter, before it was cool to be doing social justice stuff. Tamika Mallory has been doing this. So like as somebody who knows her and cares about her, like I'm 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 hurt for her. Yeah. Um, I send like we need to support Samir Rice. We do, but like we don't need to drag Tamika down for it. As far as Black Lives Matter. Once again, Patrice Culler, Alicia Garza, and Opal, they were doing this work before Black Lives Matter was a thing. They also have a record of organizing. They didn't just pop up one day with a hashtag. They've been doing this. 
The Black Lives Matter Foundation is a foundation. Look into any other foundation. They don't spend all their money in the first year. And also, this is going to sound really pig-headed to say, and feel free to drag me if you want, but it's not that easy to give away money. Yeah. Particular organizations, you got to have certain structures. And now we can have a conversation about how that in and of itself is a structure of white supremacy, but they got to move within a system that exists. They gave away $30 million. They're regranting other organizations. And with a budget of $8.4 million, that's what they use to run day to day, pay for their staff. That's not that big of a budget. That's a mid-tier organization. If you want to go take a look at somebody, look at the ACLU. They've got a $100 million budget, operating budget. And I feel like folks are coming at Black Lives Matter and like the movement because we're frustrated and I get that, but it is a movement. There are individual organizations doing the work and we need to grade them on the effectiveness of the work. And I can tell you, and maybe I'm unpopular for saying this, Black Lives Matter as a rallying cry and the way it has shifted the narrative has allowed for more things to happen. New York State is about to legalize marijuana and expunge the records of anyone who has a marijuana charge dating back from 1970. That law does not become, that doesn't pass. It isn't even a conversation without the work of organizers from before Black Lives Matter became a hashtag and before we were even watching these things happen on camera. We passed bail reform in New York State and in several other states. We're talking about getting rid of qualified immunity for police officers so they would be personally liable if they shot and killed somebody. We're not having any of these conversations. We're not passing any of these bills without that movement. Now, does that erase the real pain and struggle these folks are going through? No. Does that mean that the Black Lives Matter um, Foundation can't do a better job of giving out money? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that if we're going to criticize the movement, we should hold them accountable. We got to make sure that we are holding them accountable for the things they are actually falling short in. And yeah. as somebody who knows and loves Tamika, that's, she's not the problem. She really is not. Thank you for that, Stanley. I want to highlight L. Cole via LinkedIn who says, I love Tamika Mallory and the work that she does. It's a tricky situation. I think the public put them in those positions, but I don't think it's clout chasing. Tamir Rice's mom feels forgotten and the family should never be forgotten. This is the same issue with mega pastors in the black community who drive luxury cars and have large homes on the backs of their congregants. It's something that transparency can rectify. L beautifully and eloquently stated. I agree there because, I, but I also understanding and, and being, you know, very familiar and having conversations with those who are part of Black Lives Matter and interviewing them and Until Freedom. It takes money to do the work. And if you have people on the front lines who have dedicated their lives to your civil rights and my civil rights, who are literally today's freedom fighters, why can't they also make a living? Mm. There was it was not too long ago when Netta, who is also a prominent leader in the Black Lives Matter movement, talked about being homeless and talked about how she couldn't, you know, support herself because activists are doing the work on the ground, but they're not making any money. And the, the bottom line is we live in a capitalist society where we do need money to to, to do anything at this point, to run campaigns, to get laws passed, to change policy. You need money, people need money to survive. I do agree that transparency needs to be there, but that's why they put the report out in the beginning. They put this full length report out talking about how much money they got so that there was some accountability and to want some you know, transparency. 
I just also want to say that I think the comparison to the pastors in the mega church is a little bit unfair because these people do have boots on the ground. Uh, they're making a living, but they're also on the street. They're also uh, having policy being passed and legislation being passed. Um, and so transparency, yes, 100%, we need that. But I do think that they are doing the work and that if we're playing, paying close enough attention, we're seeing the work uh, manifest itself in a positive way. Stanley, why is it that people feel uncomfortable um, when it comes to the money and the funding when it comes to community rights. Like, I, I just feel like it's a very uncomfortable conversation and that people, and then and, and some people are saying that, you know, it's about clout and it's about making money, but what's really going on? I mean, it's a complicated question. It's a complicated answer. There are absolutely people who are taking, taking advantage. They're using like these these tragedies to make money and get rich. I call I said ambulance chasers earlier today. And that's a real thing. There are people who just look for the most recent shootings or racially motivated attack to show up, get close to the families and try to secure a bag. That is not fake. That is a real thing. That's so like so when people complain about that, they're not necessarily wrong. And there are people who had nothing to do with the work that happened on the ground, did not help, were not there didn't put any sweat equity in, but then we'll spike the football and get the credit for the work. It happens all the time in New York State. You'll see people, for example, the criminal justice community. There have been activists fighting for years to get some of these bills passed in New York that we've gotten. People who were over here saying back in 1992 to fund the police, change the bail laws, legalize marijuana. A lot of those folks are not gonna be the ones who are standing at the podium when they finally change those laws because of a lot of different reasons. Some of those are institutional, some of those are racist, some of those are just like those people didn't have the access and it's BS. So there's that piece right there. And then also a foundation is a 501c3. You can just look up the information. And I think there's a bit of a gap in information, information education of how to actually look at these things so folks don't know. And there's enough people that don't like Black Lives Matter because it's, it's it was created by women and it senses black trans women that they will help to stoke the flames to mm. that group to help themselves. Good point. Karina, do you think that Black Lives Matter, you know, even though it's under scrutiny, do you think the movement has been successful? I, I think it's a complicated question because I think similar to any movement or even a presidency, you need years after to be able to look back and say, oh, this is the, the these are the changes that have been made. But I think we are seeing changes, the, like the extensive mobilization um, in, in different cities, laws and legislation being passed, uh, like we've discussed. I think we're not losing the bigger picture and that's what's most important. I, I do feel like they've been successful. Are they being called out and scrutinized right now? Yes, cool, but that's with any organization. What we need is transparency. Let's get the transparency, let's get all the details out of the way so that we can continue on doing the work. Benjamin Harkless left a comment via Facebook saying the number one problem in the black community, pocket watching. How do you think people get to the cities to organize out of their own pocket? Again, yes. when it comes, go ahead, Stanley, you want to respond to that? You know, I'm, I'm hot about this. Yes, Benjamin, that's exactly how they get there. As somebody who has done work, organized most of my life in New York City and New York State, but it's organized in Flint who has done organizing work in DC, who has done organizing work in Baltimore. Yeah, it ain't pretty, it ain't glamorous. It's not fun and it ain't cheap. And a lot of times that's how we do it. And the folks who are able to get a little bit of foundation money or a little bit of grant money, you gotta account for all of that. Because if you misspend one thing, that's your behind. 
And then also the bigger picture I think folks are missing, the Black Lives Matter movement is a movement. It is not a person, it is not an entity, it is a movement. And revolutions, when you're talking about the work that we're doing, we cannot censor it on individual people because one individual person does not hold all the power. The mm -hmm. people do. Mm -hmm. So we're holding Tamika accountable for things she didn't do. We're trying to hold Patrice, Alicia, and Opal accountable for things that they didn't do. And we're not like actually talking about ways we can build and strengthen the movement. This is not about one person. The movement is strongest when we're a fist, not when we're pointing the finger. Yeah, and, and I think that one of the things that made people uncomfortable is that Tamika Mallory, she has been elevated in the movement. She did, you know, perform on the Grammys and take that message. But why are we mad? Like I I don't I don't understand why that's a point of contention when she's taking the same message that I've seen her preach like face to face in my community. And she's taking that message to 10 million people and calling out President Biden and saying, holding him accountable because we elected him and saying, we this is what we need, racial equity, right? I, I, I just, I think that we're, when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement, I understand not everybody, it will be directly aligned with every single principle and policy, but this is about keeping our community alive. This is about saving folks so that we don't have another Tamir Rice situation and Trayvon Martin. So my question is to you, Karina, what needs to be done so we can have more cohesiveness in the movement? Like we're fighting white supremacy. We don't need to be fighting each other as well. How are we supposed to get anything done? Oh, God, Karina, I'm sorry, you've been on mute. Go ahead. I think as journalists and as even just allies, right, of the movement, what we need to do is our due diligence to do the research. Thank God Tamika Mallory came on her podcast and said, listen, uh, like I hear you, I understand you're upset, but this is the work that I've done. I've been working since for 25 plus years, right? We need to do our due diligence to do the research and stop throwing stones so that we can then on a local level do our part and align with people locally and focus on that so that we can uh, satisfy the greater whole, right? Do you know, you know what I mean? Like. Let's stop pointing the finger. Uh, I think Tamir Rice's mom is right in her feelings that she's validated in her emotions. But I also think that we need to do the research and say, hmm, she's saying this, but where could, where could this be coming from? And what work has this person done? And wh where do they stand? And, and, and doing that research, I think, is really key and really important instead of going on Twitter and social media and, you know, ranting off. So Cabrera left a comment that I wanted to bring up and, and highlight during the conversation, she says, and I quote Cabria LaShawn Smith via Facebook, because we have been conditioned to hate each other and never celebrate each other. She says that could be one of the reasons why uh, we're seeing so much infighting in the movement itself. I also want to highlight Rachel, Rachel Johnson from Facebook says, I do organizing in HUD housing and I get this same thing. Ask for money and they think you're robbing them. I travel and I help HUD tenants to be educated, organized to fight for their rights. Yes, why are you mad? Why why get mad when all we, ha we have goals and aspirations and we work in our field of work? We use more of our own money way before receiving grants mm -hmm. and paychecks. Thank you so much, Rachel, for, for chiming in and the work that you're doing. Stanley, I know that you also want to chime in and just give a breakdown of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, so I think folks are confused. So, so let me start off first. There's three different legs of this. There's a Black Lives Matter Foundation, which is not, from what I understand, is not run from either of the three founders, Patrice, Elisa, or Opal, right? 
Then you have the Movement for Black Lives, which is the policy and advocacy leg, which is a separate organization. It's not run by any of them. And they're the ones that came out with that Movement for Black Lives policy booklet that pushed for things like bail reform and marijuana legalization and qualified immunity. And all these bills you see being negotiated and, and debated about all across the country, that came from them. And then you have Blackbird, which does PR and marketing and like make sure it communicates the story of Black Lives. Those are three different organizations. Those three founders don't run any of them. These are different people within the movement who do it. So that foundation is a separate entity that they may be involved in and engaged with at some level, but they don't get a check from it. Alicia Garza runs an entirely separate organization. And what they do is they survey Black communities to find out what they need and then go to the ground and help them organize. Then you have the Black Justice Black Alliance for Immigrant Justice Group, which is run by OPAL, which focuses on immigrant rights for Black people, which is why we know that the largest group of people who are in ICE detention are Haitian and Dominican, not Mexican and Venezuelan. Mm. Yeah, like so like these, like you guys are upset about folks who are not actually doing anything wrong. If you want to question the effectiveness of their actual organizations that they run, we can do that. But to put to, to hang them for multiple things is just unfair. Oh, by the way, there's also data for Black Lives, which goes out there and tabulates the ways that different things impact Black people and reports it so that we have a way of figuring out how to solve those problems. This is an effective movement, bottom line, by multiple organizations, by multiple people that are speaking truth to power and shifting the balance of white supremacy to Black liberation. Thank you for the breakdown, Stanley. Karina, we do have to bring this conversation to a close, but I want to get your final thoughts on um, just getting around this division in Black Lives Matter and, and, and staying focused so we can accomplish goals. What are some of your final thoughts? I just think that when we see Tamika Mallory, someone like her on a Grammy stage, we need to celebrate that. I, I think it's uh, it's perpetuating the, the positive message that we need to hear. And let's not forget what the bigger picture is. Like, let's all stay focused on the bigger picture, equality for black people. So that when Stanley walks out the door, he doesn't have to be worried about getting shot by police officials every single day, subconsciously. That is the goal. That is the overall goal. And I think we're forgetting that by get going into the weeds uh, and, and trying to throw stones. Let's remember what the goal is and let's look into ways that we can help on a local level and do the research. Those are my final thoughts. Absolutely. Stanley, uh, I wanna throw it to you to get your final thoughts about you know, what lessons have we learned from previous movements when it came to uh, the civil rights movement of the 60s, the Black Panther movement? Um, you know, those were very successful in their times, but eventually they, you know, they decimated. What lessons can we take from that and apply now so that we can keep this movement strong and fight for our rights. One of the biggest lessons you can take from the civil rights movement is do not fall in love with one charismatic leader. The movement is not led and will not be won by one charismatic leader. The movement is led by all of us, not just one person. And that means that we have to hold ourselves accountable. We have to be aspirational. We always have to be pushing for change. And we also have to be willing to hold space when people fall short because people will fall short because they're people. And when that happens, if we really care about justice, if we really care about making this world a better place, we need to address that harm with a restorative justice practice, not dragging people on social media for things they didn't actually do. Thank you for that, Stanley. And I just wanna highlight 
Leslie Sashi Chef Wiggs via Facebook says, it's quite crazy how we dog our own people and get hella mad when others do the same exact thing. Where is the respect? Thank you so much for that, Leslie. I, I just want to end by saying I'm all for accountability. I'm all for holding people, you know, accountable and, and asking for transparency. But I'm not here for, you know, the disrespect and the lynching. And especially because it's fallen on black women, the people that show up first whenever somebody is shot down, especially black men, I, it just, it doesn't sit well with me. And I understand that we're not going to agree with every tactic. Not everyone agreed with, you know, maybe someone getting a book deal or showing up on a Grammy stage. I personally think that spreading the message far and, and, and to, to the masses is a great thing, but you may not think it's as effective. When we'll have that conversation internally, get involved in the movement yourself, join the committees, join your local chapter and become a leader yourself and let's have those conversations. But if you're sitting on the sideline and using the hashtag and dogging out some of these visible leaders who are doing the work to keep us free, you're hurting the movement and you're hurting yourself. Because the bottom line is, if these organizations aren't funded, properly funded, and, and mobilized and organized, when it hits home, and it is going to hit home, because that's how pervasive white supremacy is, then what are we going to do? And again, if you yourself say, hey, let's do something different, then get involved and step up, and you be the leader. You step up. On that note, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to Be Heard Talk today. Thank you guys so much. Special thank you to Karina Maria for joining us as our special guest host who did a fabulous job. We'll be back here next Sunday. And again, please remember to support us at buymeacoffee.com slash Be Heard Talk. A small donation will support us so that we can support the issues and the causes that you care about. We'll see you next week. Bye.